Father, we are here today to declare that you are a holy God. You are a good God, an all-knowing God. You are present in our lives, Lord, and we thank you for that truth. Father, I pray that as you sent your son to, to die on the cross in our place and to be raised on the third day, I pray that we, as your church, would be honorable vessels, that we would be useful to the master of the house, ready to be used, Lord. So, Father, I just pray that now, by the power of your Spirit, you would use your word to change us, to conform us to the image of your Son. And I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, for their good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And welcome, children. are going to head back to class. Thank you for the, those of you that are serving. And our student ministry is going to head over to Mercury Mines and... Love the fact that our students are now meeting over there on Sundays at 10.45 and Sundays at, at, in the evening. Uh, but uh, so um, thankful for Brody and just his team and the work they're doing over there. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you. And, you know, if you've been sitting in the same pew because that's your seat and you've been using the same black Bible... My guess is it's just going to open up to 9.35 because we've been there for about the last six weeks, but we're going to be moving to 9.36 next week because Timothy is just a short little book. But uh, you know, we open up God's Word because we want to see what God has to say to us. So here's a question. What type of person are you? What type of person are you? Now, Certainly you have an opinion. Those around you are going to have opinions. But at the end of the day, the only opinion that really matters is the Lord's. What kind of person are you? Throughout the Bible, we really just see two types of people. Makes it simple. Those who are in Christ, those who are not in Christ. Those who will spend eternity in heaven, those who will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Those who are on the narrow path that leads to life, those that are on the wide path that leads to destruction. Those that are sheep and those that are goats. Those that are wheat, those that are tares. Those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. Those who've been redeemed, those who haven't. Those who've turned from their sin and those who continue to walk in their sin. Those who call upon the name of the Lord and those who reject the name of the Lord. And as we're going to see in this passage, those who are honorable vessels and those who are not. So again, what type of person are you? Where do you fall? It's a very important question to be able to answer, especially if you're not in Christ, you need to know what it means, what it takes to, to come to Christ. And we'll look at that today. But look, at, if you would, down at, at, at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. And we see this here, the two types of people. It says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, we know that salvation is a work of God. We are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. And the passage here talks about if anyone cleanses himself, that is not doing anything that it doesn't mean that we atone for our own sins. We don't. Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross. But this means that once we've received Christ, we now go through the process of what's known as sanctification, where we continue to become more and more like Christ, less and less like our old lives. And we knew that we know that in Christ we're new creations. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we're saved from God's wrath in Christ. But now we've got to grow. And what I've learned over time, and I've been a believer now for 25 years, is that the sanctification process, the growth process, is really a two-pronged approach. It's a two-pronged approach. The first to grow is I must preach the gospel to myself daily. I grow in Christ by preaching the gospel to myself daily. Why do I need to do that? Because I need to be reminded of the work that Jesus did on the cross for me, that, that I was deserving God's wrath, that I was dead in my sins. There was nothing I could do to save myself. Yet God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, he went to the cross, he sent Jesus to die on the cross in my place, and he was raised on the third day. When I'm gripped by that truth, that moves me in my heart from the inside out. In fact, J.D. Greer in his book, Gospel, which I seem to keep quoting because I'm spending a lot of time in, he says this, gospel change is the spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. It's, it's the gospel change takes place. I'm changed from the inside out, not only at the time of salvation, but in an ongoing process when the Spirit of God uses the story of God, that's what we get in God's Word, to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. That's where transformation takes place when I reflect on the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. But then there's a second prong. And not only are we to preach the gospel to myself to ourselves daily, but we are to practice spiritual disciplines. What are spiritual disciplines? Reading God's word, prayer, worship, serving, giving, forgiving, caring, loving. Now, if we're not careful, this will sound like a to-do list. And if we don't do the first by preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, we can then put this and make this as a list, and all of a sudden we're just on this treadmill of trying to all the time do. But it is when our hearts are gripped by the greatness of God, then all of a sudden it, it's an overflow of our heart. I want to spend time with the Lord. I want to, I want to uh, pray with him. I want to serve God's church. That just becomes a, an overflow of who I am. When I'm gripped by God's grace, I want to flee sin. I want to engage with God. But what about when I'm not gripped by God's grace? Have you ever had a time in your life where you're just not feeling it? 
Anybody besides me? Like, yeah, of course, we've, we've all felt that. D- does that mean that I should stop doing the spiritual disciplines? No. Actually, that's a time to, to press into them. Because it may be in the reading of God's word that I might all of a sudden just the spirit of God uses the story of God to change my heart. And I see God's grace and his love and his forgiveness. And and that stirs me back up. That's why Paul uh, told Timothy at the beginning of this book, he says, fan into flame the faith that is in you. We need to to continue to, to, to press on. So at times, it's in the doing that we rekindle our love and passion for the Lord. It's in seeing God's truths that I want to flee what God hates and pursue what God honors. So when we get to 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is reminding Timothy what it takes to be useful by God. And I started thinking about this. If Paul needs to remind Timothy who's a seasoned pastor at this point, do we need to be reminded? Do some of you need to be reminded? Of course. So let me put up the big idea of the message here. And that is this. A Christ follower has been set apart to be used by God. That's past past tense completed action. That's what God does for us at the time of salvation. We've been set apart to be used by God. Uh, It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We're not saved by our good works, but we're saved unto good works. And we must continue to set himself apart to be useful. So not only am I set apart at the time of salvation, but now I'm in this process of sanctification, and I'm continuing to be set apart to be useful to God. So let me go back, and let's look at this passage again in its total. Let me start in verse 20. Paul says to Timothy, now in a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So there's the conjunction. Flee youthful passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You knew that they breed quarrels, or you know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. The Lord's doulos, the the bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, when you look at this passage, you see a new, another metaphor that, God, that, that Paul uses. He uses a lot of metaphors. We've seen it. He's used the metaphor of a soldier, of a farmer, uh, of, of an um, uh, athlete. And here he uses the metaphor of a house. We see in verse 19 that there's a foundation to the house. In verse 20, it's a great house. And and some commentators believe that's the church. And there's vessels. That's us. And, And we're here to be used, useful to the master of the house. Who's the master of the house? Who's the head of the church? It's Jesus Christ. 
And so here we're getting an idea of how we become useful, a useful vessel to the master. So let's look at that. How do I become useful to the master? Well, first of all, a useful master sets themselves apart for the master. We set ourselves apart for the master. Now, context here is really important. If you remember last week, we were talking about false teachers. False teachers in, in verse 14, you know, it says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which only ruins the hearers. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble, for it would lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. We need to make sure in the context of this passage that to be useful for the master, we have to make sure that we're not, we're not prey to false teaching. And we talked about the way we keep ourselves from being praised to, to, to falling into false teachers is we know the truth. We want, a people, we want to be people of the truth. We know God's word. We know what it says so that when we hear false teaching, we can call it out. Now, I had somebody that texted me this week on Tuesday about a teacher and what they were saying. And it got buried in my text and never responded. And they asked me again this morning and I said, oh, I, I felt terrible. But, but I responded to them and I helped them understand that that's not the clear teaching of Scripture. And so we have to be careful about false teachers. I appreciated the fact that they asked. So for us to be useful to the master, we must flee false teaching. And as you're going to see in verse 22, there's some things that we need to pursue. There's some things we need to flee, but there's some things we need to pursue. But notice he says in verse 20, he says, Now in a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and clay. What's a vessel? Well, the word here, it means it's a household instrument. It's something that's used in a household. It could be dishes. It could be, it could be cups. But it also could be uh, a vessel used for trash. One of the, one of the uses of this word is, is what's known as a, a chamber pot. They didn't have indoor plumbing. So instead of going out in the cold at night, they would use the chamber pot. And then they would, they would clean it in the morning. And so what he says here is that some vessels of gold and silver, those would be the honorable vessels. But the dishonorable vessels would be made of the wood and clay. The honorable vessels would be the things that we eat on, could be the cups that we drink out of. And so what he does here is he's, there's a challenge to cleanse yourself, cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. And so Paul's not saying, as we mentioned before, that we're called to atone for our own sins. That's already been accomplished. But the idea is that we are to continue to cleanse ourselves from anything that keeps us from being used of the Lord. Look what 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There's this process, once we're saved, of cleansing of ourselves, of being sanctified. He says here, uh, uh, set apart as holy in verse 21, useful to the master. We're to flee the things that keep us from being useful. 
And I started thinking, what keeps us from being useful to God? And a word that I came up with is the word distractions. We get distracted. It may be that something that's good, but it's not best. And this is what I've learned. All distractions are equal. And you're thinking, come on, that's not true. Listen, if spending time with the Lord, if being used of the Lord is the best thing, and something is distracting me from that, even though it might be a good thing, it's equal with all the other distractions because it's keeping me from what's best. So what distracts you from truly being used of God? Could it be sin? Could it be anger? I know some of you have been dealing with anger that are in the women's Bible study, uprooting anger. I know that that's, I know the, the, the men really love that Bible study for sure. There's unforgiveness. It could be profane speech. It could be pornography. Certainly that's a distraction, more than a distraction. It could be in entertainment. It could be an inordinate desire for money. What does an honorable vessel of the Lord look like? It's someone that's been so gripped by God that you don't let distractions keep you from being a vessel that's used by God. If I'm gripped by God's grace, shouldn't that change my goals and my desires and my hopes and my wants and my priorities? So what keeps you from being set apart as holy? What keeps you from being useful to the master. If you have a desire to be useful for the master, then he tells you in verse 22 how, and that leads us to the second aspect. A useful vessel flees youthful passions. A useful vessel flees youthful passions. Look at verse 22. So flee, notice the so. It's a conjunction. If you want to be useful... There's something you must do. You must flee youthful passions, but there's something you must pursue. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those that call upon the Lord with a pure heart. These are two imperative, present, active um, verbs. Flee and keep on fleeing. Pursue and keep on pursuing. An honorable vessel that is used by God continues to flee what needs to be fleed, fled, Fleed. Our dogs get fleas. But we, we pursue and keep on pursuing the things that honors God. What we see here, the word flee, it means to escape. It means to move from in a hasty way. There's no hesitation. It's just you run. It's like you got to get out of there. You got to get away from it. And, and you see the word passion, flee youthful passions. It's, it's the Greek word epithumeo. And, and it's, it's the idea in, in the New American Standard, it's, it's the word lust. In the NIV, it's evil desires. It's, it's the idea of strongly desiring what belongs to someone else. It's to engage in more, morally wrong activity. It's a passion that can lead to destruction. It's a desire that is so great that it can cause you to engage in adultery. Or to cheating, or idolatry, or even debt. 
It keeps us from being useful to the master. How often, because of these desires that we don't default to the spirit and self-control, but we give in to our passions. Paul is saying, listen, if you want to be a vessel useful to the master, there's some things you need to flee. In fact, Galatians 5, 16 uses that word, desires. Notice where he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, if you're waking up each day and saying, Lord, I don't want to walk in my flesh nature. I want to walk by the power of your spirit. Then all of a sudden, you have a much better chance of being a a vessel useful to God. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a cosmic battle going on in your own life. In Christ, we have a new nature. We have the nature of Jesus Christ, but we also have our old nature. And if we don't walk in the spirit, we will default to our old nature, default to our old desires. And so in verse 19, Paul tells us what those desires are. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. You can see them. You can experience them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, if I'm not walking in the spirit, if I'm fulfilling the desires of the flesh and one of the fruit of the spirit is self-control, I'm going to find myself here. How do I know if I'm not walking in the spirit? This is where I'm going to find myself. Now, some people get confused on the end here. It says, I warn you as I warned before that those who, 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 uh, do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I say, well, you mean if I, you know, if I, if I have jealousy, I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God? No. What this is, this is somebody that continues in sin and they're unrepentant. That means they were never saved in the first place. If you are who you were, then you ain't. You're just not. In fact, in, in, in 1 John, it says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Had they been of us, they would not have gone out from us. But they went out from us to manifest that they'd never been of us. And so if, if people are just walking here, they need to check their salvation for sure. Desire for God can become secondary if we aren't fleeing the things that God calls us to flee. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. Flee it. Don't mess around with it. That may be a word for somebody here today. Listen, your body as a believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the last thing you want to bring into the temple. Run from it. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, flee from idolatry. What's idolatry? It's when we elevate anything above God. What's keeping you from being a use, useful to the master of the house? Could it be video games or social media or sports or people-pleasing or desire for wealth? In fact, we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you just turn back a page, look at verse 9 of chapter 6. Here's this word again, epithumeo, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's not a great path. 
For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let me ask you again. What's hindering your devotion to God? Of being useful to the master of the house. The one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Paul continues on in verse 23. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. You know, it's amazing. This is a theme we continue to see. Over and over again, there were, there were false teachers. They were teaching false truths and people were, they were quarreling about words. They were, they were all about secondary things. That word foolish, it's where we get the word moron. They're thoughts that are devoid of understanding. There's a, there's a, there's a saying for that. Many times wrong, but never in doubt. You know that person? Many times wrong, but never in doubt. Like, that's been me at certain times in my life. Totally wrong, but I was never in doubt that I was right. I could be wrong. And I could be wrong the way I was wrong, for sure. If you're quarreling about moronic, ignorant controversies, you're not focusing on forgiving and loving and caring and serving and grace and mercy. You're focused on all the wrong things. Eric Tooker, in our men's Bible study on Friday, asked a question to the men. He said, if you knew that Jesus was returning seven days from now, what in your life would change these next seven days? Would you be caught up in ignorant and foolish controversies? Would you be quarreling about words? Or would you be sharing the gospel with those people that you love? Would you be forgiving those people that you've been holding on to unforgiveness towards? Would you seek forgiveness from the people that you've sinned against? Would you maybe reach out to those people that you've been neglecting? See, we can get caught up on all the wrong things and we find ourselves all of a sudden not useful to the master. Being an honorable vessel set apart as holy. But not only are we to flee youthful passions, but a useful vessel pursues what honors God. They pursue what honors God. Look again at verse 22. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. There's a fleeing and there's a pursuing. In the Bible, we see, we see it in many of Paul's letters, there's a put off and a put on. Put off lying, put on truth. You know, put off corrupt words, put off loving, put on loving words. Here, flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those that call upon the Lord with a, with a pure heart. That word pursue, it's to go after with a vengeance. In fact, it was a word that was used for a prosecutor. Have you ever seen a prosecutor go after a defendant? 
Like in this politically charged world, you see that a lot. I'm not getting political, but you see it. It happens on both sides of the aisle. That's the type of pursuing he's talking about. We're to do something with intense effort. So what are we to pursue? We're to pursue righteousness. That's right behavior. That's conformity to the standards of, of God's word. Why would we do that? Because of what he's done for us. We're to pursue faith. Not just faith, but faithfulness. It's the idea of trusting God, trusting the sovereignty of God. It's living a life that is, that is worthy of the Lord. It's, it's growing in our knowledge of him. It's, it's what Paul says to the Colossian church in, in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, I pray that, that you're filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So you would have a walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's, a, it's pursuing faith. It's pursuing love. That word love here is it's, it's agape love. It's unconditional love. It's the same kind of love that, Jesus, that God had for us when he sent his son to die on the cross in our place. It's the type of love we're to have others. Let me ask you, do you pursue love like that? To be loving to those around you? It's giving your time to someone who's hurting. It's befriending someone that's lonely. It's a love that Maybe even goes after a prodigal or maybe shares the gospel with someone that doesn't know Jesus. And finally, he says, pursue peace. It's a word for tranquility or shalom. Go after it. So here's the question. If you're sitting here saying, like, I'm not doing this. So do you just try harder? Do you just write this down in your notes as a to-do list and you're going to go home and start working on them? No, that's not what this is about. This is not just another to-do list. Notice what verse 22 says. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Here's the key. Along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. There's a calling on the Lord. It's understanding, I'm broken. I struggle with this, and it's calling on the Lord to give me strength to, to live the way he wants me to live. And, and, it, and it takes place as I reflect on his goodness and his grace. All of a sudden, it's not I'm trying to do this. I want to be more righteous. I want, as I understand what God's done for me, I want to be more peaceable. I want to be more loving. I want to be more faithful. It's not just trying harder. It's calling out that word call. It's to cry out. It conveys urgency. That word is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that's in the book of Acts in the story of Stephen. In, in Acts chapter 7 when it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, which he died from, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's, he cried out to God in desperation. We don't try to do this in our own strength. We do it. We cry out to God. And, and here's the other thing we see. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. We don't just call out to God, but we call out to God. Notice what it says here. With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, we surround ourselves with others that are calling on the Lord, that are dependent upon the Lord, that, that know their need for the Lord. It's I'm surrounding myself with others to, to strengthen me, 
to make me strong. And that's why we're so intentional about getting people in small group and to our youth group and to women's Bible study and men's Bible study and our young adults. We want you to be involved in a community. So you're not trying to do this in your own strength, but you're with a group of people that are intentionally calling on the Lord and challenge you to do the same. Paul shares some additional ways to be set apart as holy, not only pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those that call upon the Lord with its pure heart. But notice verse 24. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but, here's the shift, here's the turn, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Instead of being quarrelsome, be kind to everyone. Now, I have never been accused of that. But that's what I'm called to be as a believer in Jesus Christ. Instead of being quarrelsome, being kind to everyone. It presupposes a peaceable attitude. It's the idea of speaking and acting kindly. It's not submitting to the culture and their opinions or just, just lobbing angry bombs at people. It's being kind. And kindness must be firmly rooted in the truth. It doesn't mean that we compromise. No, we're firmly rooted. We, we know who we are and we know whose we are and we know what we believe. And, and so he says, that's why he says, being kind to everyone, able to teach. So instead of just saying, you're moronic, we want to open up the word. We want to show them what the truth says. We want to help them to understand the truth of God's word. Timothy, as a pastor, certainly he was called to teach. But what about those of us that are not in ministry? Well, the reality is, if you're in Christ, you are in ministry because ministry is just serving. And we are all called to take the truths of God's word and share them with others. That's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then this, teaching them all that I've commanded you. How do we know what God has commanded us? By looking into God's word. And so we're just sharing the truths that we've learned. Able to teach, patiently enduring. The problem is, some of us aren't taking what we've learned and passing them on to other people. And let me tell you, that's where you grow, that's where you learn. In fact, Hebrews chapter 5 talks about this. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, let me ask you, could he be talking about you? I'm not saying coming up and taking my job, which We'll be all right. But, but being able just to teach the oracles of God to people, the basic principles. For though, both, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Why? Because he's never grown up. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment 
uh, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It is in using God's word daily. It's practice. Notice the word practice. By constant practice, it's I'm spending time in the word. I'm reciting the gospel. I'm, I'm helping other people see it. It could be with your kids. It could be with people in your small group. It could be your, your roommates. I know we have a lot of students that are really good about having discipleship with, their, with, with some other students at the, at, the, at, at the university. I think that's a wonderful thing. That's where you grow. That's where discernment comes in. It, it, it's kind of like use it or lose it. We don't want to have to just keep going back and learning something over and over again. Here's what we learn from what Timothy tells, what Paul tells Timothy. When you teach the truth of God, evil will rear its ugly head. Notice what it says here. It says, and the Lord's servant must, be, uh, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Patience. Walking in the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. That word correcting, it's a word used for educating or instructing. It, it, it's, it's not just getting frustrated and walking away. It's patiently sitting down, opening up the word. I shared this story last Last week about Rosario Butterfield and how that pastor for two years patiently endured, patiently spoke the truth to her. And finally, she turned from her lifestyle and turned to the Lord. And now she's a great warrior for the Lord, patiently enduring. A vessel that is useful to the master patiently endures and corrects his opponents with pride and condescension? No. With gentleness and kindness and compassion. See, our goal shouldn't be to win arguments. Our goal should be to win souls. So often, we might win the, win the battle, but we lose the war. Let me ask you, is this hard? Is what he's telling us to do here hard? No, it's not hard. It's impossible. It's impossible apart from walking in the spirit. See, if we get our vertical right, the horizontal falls into place. This is not a self-improvement plan. This is a reminder that, I'm in, that I am broken and I am desperate in need of a, of a savior of, 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 of my Lord. So a useful vessel pursues what honors the master, but fourth, a useful, ma a useful vessel trusts the master can do the impossible. Now, I've read this passage a lot, and I've really never seen these next couple verses. See, when you pursue what honors God, don't be surprised if God does what you thought not possible. Don't be surprised. God can do the impossible. Look at verse 24 again. Let me just start at the beginning. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Boom. God may perhaps grant repentance. 
leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice what he says. God may perhaps grant them repentance. It's a reminder that God is sovereign in salvation. Now, God holds us responsible for receiving him. But God is sovereign in salvation. And he still does the impossible. Now, 25 years ago, actually 26 years ago, right about now, we've been in Dallas for about six, seven months, and people were inviting us to church. That was the last place I wanted to be. I did not want to go to church, didn't want to have anything to do with church, did not like Christians, didn't want to be around Christians. We got invited to a Christmas Eve service, and it was the last place I wanted to be, but Pam wanted to go. And uh, she wasn't taking no for an answer, and we went. And over the next couple weeks, I was an idiot, and I just kept foolish controversies. I was, I was, you know, ignorant, ignorant arguments with people and people were just gracious. They corrected my thinking with gentleness. And ultimately on January 11th, 1998, God granted us repentance. We both got down on our knees. We asked God to forgive us of our sins and he did. We asked him to come into our life and he did. We asked him to change us and he did. And our lives have been different ever since. See, it was through them being useful vessels to the master that God used them. God granted us repentance. And notice it says, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I'd never picked up a Bible before. I didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But all of a sudden, I started reading the Bible and I couldn't get enough of it. Pam had been reading the Bible, hiding it from me for about four or five months, and she, and she didn't she didn't read Greek, but to her it was just Greek. And then we got saved, and it was all of a sudden the scales fell off of her, and she, all of a sudden the Bible meant something to her. And notice what it says here. It says, "May perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil." See. Prior to Christ, we are, we are following the prince of the power of this world. That's Ephesians chapter 2. That's sna- Satan. Snaten. That's, <laughs> that's a snare of Satan. We've been captured by him, doing his will, but now God has saved us out of that. Listen, when you combine... The brokenness of a soul, that was us, with the mercy of God, you put them together, God does the impossible. God did the impossible. If you become a believer in Jesus Christ, if if you've received Christ as Lord and Savior, he has already done the impossible in your life. The Bible is all about him doing the impossible. Listen, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You read through the Bible, he's doing the impossible all over the place. I mean, think about Joseph, how Joseph was sold into slavery, but God used that to use him to save a nation and and to preserve the seed of the Messiah. How about Moses when the nation of Israel was backed up against the Red Sea? God did the impossible by parting the Red Sea. I mean, you think about David, I mean, going up against Goliath, who was three times his size, and 
He used a little slingshot. That's God doing the impossible. How about Ezra and Nehemiah after the nation had been in captivity a thousand miles away in Babylon, how God turned the hearts of the kings to bring them back. Just read chapter 1-1 of both Ezra and Nehemiah. You see God turning the hearts of kings. You see Lazarus being raised from the dead. Thomas putting his fingers in the holes of Jesus' hand. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of of Christians, how God on on the road to Damascus changed his heart, did the impossible, saved him. The fact that Jesus came to earth and died a substitutionary sacrificial death in our place on the cross and was raised on the third day is a reminder that God can and God will do the impossible. Do you want to be a useful vessel to the master of the house? First, you need to receive him as Lord and Savior. But secondly, he wants you to cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. So you'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Set yourself apart. Flee youthful passions. Pursue what honors the master and trust that he can do the impossible. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up, and as they do, I want you just to take a moment to reflect on a question, a couple questions. One, the first question I ask is, what type of person are you? Are you in Christ or not in Christ? And I would tell you, don't leave here today wondering. Make sure that you know that you know that if if Jesus were to return today, you'd spend eternity in heaven because you you turn from your sin, that's called repentance, and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Second question I want to ask is what's distracting you from being useful to the master? What has gotten in the way of you being used for the master of the house? Just maybe confess it right now and and repent of it. And, and, And know this, God uses our brokenness God uses us even in our brokenness to be vessels useful to the master of the house. Father, thank you for your grace, for your love for us, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the great story of your redemption, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for the fact that everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised raised him from the dead, we will be saved, Lord. Thank you for that truth. Lord, now help us to just be set apart, useful to you, for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.